Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The pictures of devastation in the Bahamas are shocking. Health officials say the death count could be staggering. The devastation facing the Bahamas today is something that almost all small island nations across the globe are at risk of. We're going to talk about environmental justice issues facing small island nations and other vulnerable communities with Lisa Benjamin from Lewis and Clark College of Law. She recently co-authored an article called Climate Change, Poverty, and Human Rights, an Emergency Without Precedent. Lisa's originally from the Bahamas, and she advised the government of the Bahamas for several years at the U.N. Climate Convention negotiations. Thanks for joining us, Lisa. Thank you very much for having me. I wonder if you could tell us about um, your family situation. If you, was your family in the Bahamas, or are they okay? Yes, thank you uh, for asking. My father's in uh, Nassau, and most of my friends and family are in the capital. Um, Nassau did experience some flooding, um, high winds, uh, and the electricity has been out or off and on for the past four days. But uh, everyone is fine. They're accounted for. They're well. And the people that I do know in both Abaco and um, the Grand Bahama are all accounted for. So I feel incredibly lucky. Now, I, I think people don't um, know what to exactly talk, say about the vulnerability of small island nations like the Bahamas. But um, there's a term called non-adaptive to climate change that kind of applies to a place like the Bahamas. Can you uh, explain what that means? Yeah, so um, we have uh, been very uh, seen reports that are increasingly certain from scientists that although climate change is not causing hurricanes, it is fueling the intensity of these hurricanes. And so as the temperatures of the oceans warm, it changes the conditions under which these hurricanes form, and that is why we're seeing forecasters say the storm is so unpredictable, it's unprecedented, they're getting much more intense and much stronger. And I just want to point out that although Hurricane uh, Dorian is devastating, we have seen this before in the region, and we will see it in the future as a result of increased temperatures due to climate change. So just in the Bahamas, we've had four major category hurricanes in the past five years. So Hurricane Joaquin hit Long Island in 2015 as a Category 4 hurricane. Hurricane Matthew hit the capital Nassau in 2016 as a Category 4, and I was there in Nassau when it hit. It came in as a Category 3, left us as a Category 4. Irma devastated the island of um, Ragged Island in the Bahamas in 2017 as a Category 5. And, of course, we have Dorian as a Category 5 in 2019. And so the country is just being devastated almost every year by increasingly intense hurricanes. And there's just no way to prepare for and adapt to these kinds of storms. We're not um, able, as a very small country, to manage them. Uh, So there's no way that you can adequately prepare for, endure, or recover from this kind of intensity of storms. So you can get sandbags, but you can't adapt to 20-foot storm surges. There's just no way that we can do it. And so... This is really going beyond our ability as a small and vulnerable nation to cope with the increased intensity and frequency of the impacts of climate change. Are there there places that have, you know, come to terms with that? Because that's a pretty heavy thing. If we cannot cope with this and, you know, we cannot deal with these storm surges, that the implications of that are, like, bad. You've got got to move. There's got to be a lot of changes. 
Yeah, so um, climate-induced displacement um, and it is an issue in the region. So the majority of the world's vulnerable populations will be displaced within their own borders. But for small island states, it's very difficult. Where are we going to go? So even for Hurricane Dorian, it's 70,000 people that have been affected. That's almost a quarter of our population. And it's very difficult to relocate them. The capital itself is small. And so the the concept of migration... Having climate refugees uh, is a very sensitive topic in the Caribbean and also in Pacific Islands. So in the Caribbean, we're facing extreme events like these hurricanes. In the Pacific Islands, they are uh, facing uh, not just typhoons, but slow onset events like increased sea level rise. And you have countries like Kiribati who have a national policy of migration with dignity. And so they have a long-term policy where they will upskill their residents so to allow them to voluntarily migrate on the basis of skills, um, and they're trying to rebuild smaller communities of their culture in other countries. And, you know, you have other Pacific islands that are buying land and, you know, islands with higher ground. In the Caribbean, we don't have formal um, relocation and migration policies. It's a very difficult thing to ask a government to implement and to even approach with your own populations. Most island um, nations and nationals don't want to leave. This is our home. This is our culture. This is our heritage, uh, and we want to stay, but we want to stay under conditions that are safe for our communities. So it's it's not just the economic costs, which are devastating. I mean, this hurricane is looking at $7 It's the non-economic costs of communities being completely torn apart. Now, uh, just to go back to the Bahamas and the displacement within the Bahamas now, when you talk about a quarter of the population or so being needing a place to live right now, that's a, that's an enormous thing. And th- they probably um, you know, might have to go a great distance to find somewhere that is safe. Um, you mentioned Nassau's on pretty high ground, but uh, probably can't absorb all those people. The entire country is fairly flat, even Nassau, but Nassau has most of the infrastructure. Uh, one of the largest uh, islands with space is Grand Bahama, which has obviously been devastated by the storm, and 50% of um, housing structures there have been destroyed. So this has happened, as I said, in the past. So, for example, in 2017 with Hurricane Irma, the population of Ragged Island was very small, 72 people, but that was the whole island, and they were evacuated by the government to the capital. And uh, with 70,000 people, it really goes beyond the ability of the government to evacuate people, and that's why we are relying on outside agencies to help. But the question is, where do we rehouse residents? A lot of them are coming to the capital because the population size is greater, and therefore they will have extended friends and family that they can stay with. Um, A number of school children, the policy is to try to enroll those children in schools in the capital in Nassau so they can continue with their education. But it's extremely difficult to figure out where uh, people are going to go. 70,000 people is a lot of people. Uh, I also want to make the point that some of the communities that have been devastated are communities that are what we would call informal settlements. Um, and in the Bahamas, we call them shanty towns. And so this is where you have migrants who are both legal and illegal immigrants to the country. And where are they going to go? They don't have these extended communities that Bahamians have. And they also have a greater fear of, you know, being deported as a result. And so vulnerable populations, it's even more difficult for them to migrate um, safely to other islands. And there's a significant uh, Haitian population in the Bahamas? 
Is that in a significant population? Yes, and um, so one of the areas that was hit in Marsh Harbor in Abaco and just flattened and devastated was an area called the Mud, which is um, a largely Haitian community. And of course, when you have informal settlements, the the uh, structures are not up to the building code. They are informal. They are very fragile and very vulnerable. And a number of deaths um, have already been have already occurred in those communities. And so, vulnerable populations, vulnerable subgroups like the elderly, um, the disabled, migrants, and win- women as well. There are gender implications of this as well. They are often the hardest hit, and it's more difficult for them to recover after these extreme events. I'm talking with Lisa Benjamin. She is originally from the Bahamas and advised the government of the Bahamas for several years at the U.N. Climate Convention negotiations. She uh, teaches at Lewis and Clark College of Law and recently co-authored an article, Climate Change, Poverty, and Human Rights, an Emergency Without Precedent. If people in the Bahamas are begin thinking about... Um, where to go if you if you have this many displaced people? What is the answer to that question? Do some people come to the U.S.? I saw some um, some colleges were offering people, uh, you know, students uh, free semester and things like that. But um, is are there is there an option that seems logical to you? Um, I think this is something as a country that we haven't discussed at a national level, um, and I think it is. After, obviously, Dorian, the implications and the impacts of climate change are very real. And um, I think we have to start thinking as a country uh, how we're going to manage this, this level and the scale. But even though we've had hurricanes in the past, it's never hit this population size. So the devastation has never been this extreme among this many people. And that is why it's really um, exceeded our capacity. I think it's a very difficult issue. So uh, each island in the Bahamas has their own small settlements and their own culture and communities. And so these are very small and close communities. They have their own sense of place within that particular island. And so being able just to pick a community up and move it to another island is, you know, not ideal. Everyone moving to the capital is also not ideal because the island of New Providence, where the capital is, is very small, and it already houses the majority of the population. I think um, the informal policy of the government at the moment is to help people rebuild in their original communities, but to help them rebuild on higher ground where that's available. But in order to do that, you really need consultation with the communities to make sure that that is what they want to do and, and where they want to rebuild. What you don't want is a situation where Communities are rebuilding themselves in a vulnerable area, and so therefore they are just subject to, you know, possible devastation in the future. It requires, at the community level for the affected communities, a lot of um, discussion and consent and participation by these affected communities. But at a national level, I think we need to start really discussing um, the impacts of climate change on the country and how we're going to manage it. What happens in small countries is what my colleague and co-author, Dr. Del Thomas, and I have called this unvirtual cycle of the um, deterioration of resilience and development. The more money that governments have to spend from public budgets to recover from these extreme and devastating events, the less investment they can put into sustainable development, policy formation for things like migration, and also, ironically, climate change adaptation. So it's very difficult for governments to be able to have adequate policy landscapes because they're spending so much money just trying to recover. 
And so it's this degradation of cycle of development that we are facing as small island countries. So, you know, the Bahamas is part of the Alliance of Small Island States. We negotiate um, very hard at the um, climate change um, negotiations and in Paris to be able to have countries acknowledge this concept of what you discussed at the beginning of loss and damage. These events we just cannot adapt to, we cannot recover from. We need help from the international community, both in terms of financial assistance, but also reducing the emissions of large developed and large developing countries. We are seeing this devastation because of the activity of greenhouse gases in both developed and large developing countries. At the Paris talks, there was uh, created a large amount of money that was supposed to be for recovery of places uh, that were more vulnerable. Did the, did the Alliance of Small Island States get any of that? So there is a green climate fund that was uh, agreed a number of years before the Paris Agreement and formalized and connected to the um, constitutive bodies under the UNFCCC. So there is a fund. Um, there are also a number of other environmental funds that um, island nations can have access to. There's funding under previous bodies as well, like the Kyoto Protocol, um, in terms of trading mechanisms, but small island states were not able to benefit from that. It was usually large developing states that accessed a lot of that money under the Clean Development Mechanism. So small island states argued for a separate window to be able to access specific funding. Um, so adaptation funding is there, but it is nowhere near the levels that that is needed. The Paris Agreement um, also uh, formed what's called a transparency mechanism so that countries had to report not just their emission reductions, but also the amount of finance and money they were providing to the Green Climate Fund. There is some controversy about what is overseas development aid and what is climate adaptation. Um, and so, you know, there there's still some problems with this. Um, the amount of money pledged is nowhere near the amount that will be required by developing states for adaptation. It is a start, um, but what we're looking at here is not just adaptation, but it's what's called loss and damage, which we started discussing at the beginning. And there was a huge controversy about whether or not financial compensation for loss and damage would be part of the Paris Agreement, and it was excluded on the request of a number of developed states. So incidents like loss and damage um, are not... Uh, the financial element of that is not officially covered in the Paris Agreement, although countries can list the incidents that they are experiencing, like the impacts from Hurricane Dorian, and ask um, you know governments to contribute. It, it would seem right that uh, a pile of that money would go to a situation like this, doesn't it? Uh, yes. So what happens in the um, the immediate aftermath is. Um, disaster relief, and so those are usually from overseas development aid uh, funds and disaster funds from different countries. Um, and then afterwards, when we need to start thinking about exactly what you discussed, how do we form policies, how do we adapt to these kinds of um, uh, experiences, then you move more into climate change funding. But, you know, to be honest, how is the government going to afford to rebuild half the homes in, you know, the one of the second largest um, island and, and the second city, Freeport, Grand Bahama. The government just can't afford to do it. Um, and so to be able to have other countries contribute to that would be very helpful. Um, what the hesitancy and the political sensitivity about financial compensation for loss and damage is it looks like climate reparations. And so developed countries do not want to officially be on the hook 
for impacts of climate change because they are just so devastatingly large across the globe. So we're talking about vulnerable countries, uh, vulnerable populations within many, many, many developing countries. I wanted to ask a question uh, more uh, along the lines of migration. And you mentioned that Kiribati is doing migration with dignity, trying to um, get people into different situations. And this is so hard to do culturally. I'm a little familiar with what happened in Diego Garcia when um, the U.S. and Britain displaced people from Diego Garcia who subsequently and to this day are still suing over their displacement and yeah. the the loss of their culture they it seems like their community never recovered uh, they went into uh, Great Britain but uh, they they never were right again the, the community was never whole again uh, can, can you say something more about that I think it's an extraordinarily sensitive issue within small island states. So although Kiribati has this official policy and um, a couple of other Pacific states, as I said, are buying land in countries with higher ground, most uh, small island developing countries have the policy that they do not want to migrate outside of their country. They want to stay where they are. Because in these small countries, your culture is so connected to your landscape, you know, in the case of the Bahamas, to the ocean, and... uh, I did a study with my colleague, uh, Dr. Del Thomas, on displacement policies within small and developing states, and very few countries have an official policy. It's usually not part of their climate change adaptation policy, particularly because it is so sensitive. So as I said, within particular islands with the Bahamas, there's a specific culture, and so these kinds of non-economic loss and damage include, you know, erosion of traditional knowledge, um, uh, diminishing health and, and uh, of the population, particularly when they are displaced, they're much more vulnerable. The kind of community cohesion is just lost, and it's very difficult to recover from that. Your sense of place, your sense of identity, your sense of dignity, your connection to your culture and to your land is just severed and destroyed. And with physical infrastructure, you also have the destruction of community um, housing. So you have churches, places of worship, cultural artifacts. Um, you even have uh, cemeteries, and so your you know your ancestors, community buildings, places where communities um, meet. These are all physically destroyed as well. So even if you can rebuild your community um, in other places together as a community, you really you know tear apart that um, sense of cohesion, your sense of identity, and your sense of of place. And I think every Bahamian will tell you that our sense of identity is deeply connected with the ocean and with our our natural resources. So many of us, particularly in these smaller islands, depend on natural resources for our very survival. We're you know fishermen, farmers, and you know being disconnected from our place is being disconnected from our sense of ourselves, and um, it's very very emotionally um, difficult to recover from. Lisa Benjamin is from Lewis and Clark College of Law. She recently co-authored an article, Climate Change, Poverty, and Human Rights, an Emergency Without Precedent. Lisa's originally from the Bahamas. She advised the government of the Bahamas at the U.N. Climate Convention negotiations. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll keep our eye on the issue of small island nations. Thank you very much. Thank you for your concern. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about 2 million people being potentially stateless in India. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. 
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Last weekend, 1.9 million people who live in the Indian state of Assam learned that they are not citizens there. Saturday, Assam published a long item that's been in the work. It's called the National Register of Citizens. Assam is in the northeast of India, and it shares a border with Bangladesh. It's composed of more minorities than most parts of India. And the fear is that minorities are being excluded in Assam and that the process will spread to the rest of India. Amrit Shah, the Minister of Home Affairs, has called for the ejection of termites and said that the BJP would run a countrywide campaign to send back infiltrators. But there's lots of reasons why the process in Assam shouldn't work as a model for anything. Let's walk through the issue with Sumeya Shankar, and she is an independent journalist and a professor of journalism at Stony Brook University, and she writes about the politics and social movements in South Asia. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what I think the general impression of the National Register of Citizens is in kind of news reports in this country and, and how people think about it, is that this is a effort by the BJP to exclude Muslims uh, from citizenship registries. But it sounds like it's a whole lot more complicated than that and that that's really not exactly what's going on here. Yeah, absolutely. No, you're right. So the general uh, perception outside especially has been that this is a typical BJP model to exclude minorities and turn India towards the Hindu state, um, which is not exactly true. There are some elements of that, but uh, the NRC, the citizenship issue in the northeast of India, and specifically in the state of Assam that we're talking about here, is very, very old. Uh, in that it goes up till, uh, you know, the partition of the subcontinent in 1947 when a huge amount of migration happened from both sides, India into Bangladesh and Bangladesh into India. And it's so much so that in 1951, it says there was the demand for an NRC, which is the National Register of Citizens, led by the people, the ethnic Assamese-speaking people of Assam, saying, we want the Bengali-speaking people out of Assam. So 1951 is actually when the first NRC was conducted in the state. And there's actually a list that goes back to 1951, which is used as a model for the current NRC, which is to say anyone who is included in the 1951 NRC is an original inhabitant, of Assam, they're not a foreigner, they're not an intruder, and they are citizens of India. So that's sort of a yardstick than 51 NRC. So since then, uh, an NRC was promised in 1951, but then the ethnic and linguistic um, differences between the Assamese-speaking people and the Bengali-speaking people, both Hindus and Muslims, really widened in the state. So we, we must remember when we talk about NRC that more than being a religious issue, it is an ethnic and linguistic issue. You know, one of the things I've been reading about that's really interesting is the different examples of people and um, who have who are being denied citizenship. And anytime you're denying citizenship to 1.9 million people, there are so many different things that happen, typographical errors, all sorts of little things that have gone wrong in people's past. Women seem to be excluded more. Um, they're, they have a harder time proving their citizenship. It's, it, there's a whole range of things that are just sound impossible to overcome and do, and do even accurately. 
It's actually, a, you know, a bureaucratic nightmare, the way this NRC has been con- uh, conducted. People have been excluded from minor, minor, um, you know, omissions or mistakes, like a simple letter that is like someone, one of the cards that he has, and he's excluded. Uh, women's and men's name are interchanged in a lot of in a lot of the places and it's absolutely horrible to see you know in a country where um, elected ministers cannot produce their education degrees you're asking so many poor uh, working class people to produce their land documents there are, so there are 15 documents which include land documents electoral rolls any uh, school documents university documents this is a very very difficult process for for these people to produce such documents with bureaucratic efficiency and in that not a single spelling or not a single number has to be astray if it is so then then the person will be declared uh, not a citizen of india and i've seen so many cases where for for very very minor uh, reasons that that is not any fault of the person who was in question, it is a completely bureaucratic blunder. A person has been excluded from citizenship, and there, there is no justice. There is no end to this. In addition to the bureaucracy problems, there there's some kind of way that people can lodge an objection to someone's citizenship, and these people can kind mm-hmm. of remain almost anonymous to the process. In fact, I think one month before the final list was released on August 31st, um, I think 20 days before that, there was uh, there was an objection list that was filed randomly by the All Assam Students Union, which which has been the pivotal, sort of the most important political body behind the Assam movement, which is the movement of linguistic and ethnographic pride in uh, among the Assamese people. That led to the NRC. So the ASU, which is All Assam Students Union, is an all-powerful political and negotiating body pressure group in Assam. Um, and they filed an objection. There were, I think, 200,000 names that they just randomly picked up. Well, they say it was randomly picked up, but um, there were 200,000 Bengali-sounding names that they picked up, raised an objection, and all of those people in the last, very last minute, just a few days before the finalist was about to be released, um, they had to run 200, 300 kilometers, some, some people on bullet carts, in one day's notice, in a lot of cases, to present their cases in front of a uh, NRC office and uh, tribunal, foreigners tribunal, and this led to deaths. This has led to suicides, and this has led to a lot of a lot of atrocity. The last minute objection that was filed That's by amazing. the body. That's unbelievable. I'm talking with Sumia Shankar, and she is a journalist, and she's in Northeast India, and we're discussing what's happened in Assam, where last weekend 1.9 million people who uh, live in Assam learned that they are not citizens there. Um, One of the things that is unusual here is that um, there are already detention centers in Assam for people who are not citizens, who are found in foreign tribunals to be foreigners. What is the logical conclusion of what to do with 1.9 million people who are in violation here? Actually, that's a very good question to which there is no answer, at least not from the side of the state yet, because, you know, even the biggest supporters of the NRC uh, movement, which included Modi's party, the BJP, is now opposing it because there are more, you know, there are a lot of Hindu names who are declared to be non-citizens. And and when when the expectation was that there would be a lot of Bengali Muslims in the, in the list, 
there are a lot of Bengali-speaking Hindus in the list, which is why BJP and other right-wing parties are now opposing the bill after vehemently, um, you know, supporting it and uh, communalizing the whole issue. So we we do not know what is going to happen. There are the government has promised uh, around 11 detention centers, and some contracts have also been signed. There is one detention center which I physically saw, which was coming up. But until now, the thousands of people who have been declared foreigners and who have been disenfranchised from voting through the Assam movement, um, you know, uh, they call D voters or doubtful voters. All of these people have been have been placed in uh, actual jails, in actual prison facilities, and they're just called detention centers. But they're actual prison facilities, and the rules and the and regulations that they are made to live in are all, you know, just like any other criminal, which is who is housed in a prison facility. So even though there are new detention centers coming up, it is unimaginable how 1.9 million people can be housed in those detention centers. The one that I checked out has a capacity of 3,000 people. So even with overcrowding, it can maximum go to like 5,000 people, not more than that. So I think it's it's basically the detention center thing is a fear-inducing, uh, scaring device right now. I do not know if it will go to that stage, but definitely there is preparation for that. Now, one of the things that I think a lot of people in this country would think would happen would, because in this country we send people back to Latin America, but in this case of Bangladesh, they are not going to accept people back, they say, and there is nowhere to send them to. Can the Indian state create a different class of citizen? Actually, um, I think that's the only doable thing that can happen is to create a second class of citizens who will be ultimately disenfranchised and who will live as second class citizens and who have to go and, you know, uh, depose themselves before a police authority or a court every week or every month, um, maybe have a monitoring system like the GPS anklets that undocumented immigrants in America are made to wear. But you're absolutely right. Uh, Bangladesh has said no to any kind of an extradition treaty, but obviously that makes sense too because um, a lot of these people are Indian citizens. You know, I, I saw at least 50 people who were who were delisted from Indian citizenship, and I saw their documents, and they have all their documents in place. This is, you know, there has to be a major lapse, if not a major bias, as to why they're not declared to be citizens. A lot of these people are actually very much genuine Indian citizens. Why should Bangladesh take Indian citizens? And even those who came after 1971, because 1971 is the cutoff, before that, if you've come, you are an Indian citizen. After that, if you've come, you're a foreigner. Even people who've come after 1971, uh, the Hindus who have come, uh, the BJP, since that's a national vote bank for them, they are promising a citizenship amendment bill, which will give national citizenship of India to any Hindu from around the subcontinent, you know, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, Sri Lanka, you name it, any Hindu who can claim persecution, Bangladesh, can really become a national citizen of India. So now, now, that would be a wild thing, wouldn't it? That, that would be um, something that would... Uh... Uh, I mean, that really recasts what the Indian state's all about. This is, this. I mean, everything that I have studied about the con- uh, constitution of India and that I have revered in the idea of India, you know, being a pluralistic, multi-ethnic democracy for all, this very much goes against that idea. 
So bringing citizenship based on religion has been an idea that uh, that the Hindu Nationalist Party have compounded for a long time, and that is actually a stated policy and a stated desire to create a Hindu state. And if the citizenship amendment will go through, they actually uh, the BJP actually tried pushing it through Parliament in their first term, but they did not have an overwhelming majority. But now that they do, it is very very much a possibility that it will go through the Parliament without any debate. And um, and once that happens in India, will lose its you know moral high ground of being a pluralistic democracy for all. If if uh, I mean Hindu persecution is is obviously a real thing in in the neighborhood, but to give citizenship based on religion is something which is unconstitutional in India. Well, is there any way that the courts can rescue this scene? Because it sounds like the the situation in Assam has been overseen by the courts. And uh, is there court challenges that could rectify uh, everything here from citizenship laws to the uh, National Register of Citizens in Assam? Uh, Would that work? So uh, I think uh, the courts, uh, the Honorable Supreme Court of India, which has overseen the process, has been uh, extremely fair, which is why, uh, you know, the general rhetoric in Assam has been and the BJP uh, has uh, has been using this rhetoric, which is, you know, there are 4 million, 5 million illegal Bangladeshi Muslim immigrants and they're termites and they should be thrown out and stuff like that. When uh, what we have right now is 1.9 billion, out of which many, many are Hindus. Uh, so the, the, entire, the entire narrative that was created around uh, infiltrators from Bangladesh taking over the country is broken by this exercise of the court, which is why NRC is actually supported by a lot of minority groups in Assam because they are saying this will be an end to our our suffering and our suppression. Then ultimately they will understand that we are Indians and we are not Bangladeshi. They will stop harassing us. So uh, the court has actually already done that, and then there's going to be a four-month procedure going forward from now on, where people can go and uh, argue their case in front of foreigner tribunals, and ultimately. Ultimately, that decision of the tribunal will be final, in whether sending someone to a detention center or disenfranchising them, declaring them an Indian citizen or not. Um, you're there in Northeast India. Is there a reaction to all this that is, um, I don't know, astounding? I mean, are people um, shocked at what's going on? I, I would think if this kind of thing at this scale were happening in the U.S., people would be shocked. You know, you're absolutely very right. In fact, when I went there first to report, I was I was expecting more of a reaction. I was expecting more protests, uh, more activism. And there has been, this has been, uh, when we talk about the NRC, it has been a very bloody and extremely difficult conflict in the Northeast, which led to the Nelly massacre that saw 2,000 Muslims being massacred. A lot of Hindus, as many people Hindus, gave up their lives for the Assam movement. Uh, every time a little spark has led on to create a huge fire, thousands of people have given up their lives already for the NRC and for this movement. But, you know, what what I noticed was that there is a, a mass consensus on the ground among Hindus and Muslims um, saying, uh, believing that the NRC is good for them because this would end their harassment. Their Muslims are, were, were telling me, Muslim organizations and political parties were telling me that their hope is that they would finally, you know, this entire propaganda about there are these many illegal infiltrators from Bangladesh living in Assam would 
come to an end and they would stop being called bangladeshis um you know um, and nia which is a word used as a slur against them and that they would live happily i think it is far too innocent for anyone to believe this right now because people who are communalizing this are now saying that they'll take an rt to the rest of the country but uh, this is what people believe and this is why there are no protests right now Somia Shankar is a jur- independent journalist and adjunct professor of journalism at Stony Brook University. She writes about the politics and social movements in South Asia, and we've been talking with her about what's been happening in the Indian state of Assam, where last weekend 1.9 million people were declared not citizens there as they published their National Register of Citizens. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. And we'll find out about a pan-Asian spoken word open mic. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend, Nari Safavi, is here to let us know how to have some fun. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. You know what? I've got some ideas for fun this time. Yeah, you have a couple of things that you wanted to mention that sounded interesting. I know about and have attended the... uh, Uptown Garden Walk a few times, and this is the fourth annual Uptown Garden Walk, and I recommend it. It is lovely, and uh, they have yoga in the morning for people. There's a lake effect tour at 11 o'clock. There's a Trees of Uptown uh, tour at 1.30. You could go on Google and check out the offerings of the Uptown Garden Walk. It is a good, low-key Fun time. And absolutely, and you find some real gems of buildings and gardens over there, too. That's, uh, uh, it's always, you know, even though I have done it a couple of times, it's still amazing how much new things you discover when you do it again. So uh, it's really, and was there something else you wanted to mention, too? Yes. I was, uh, earlier in the week, we had the guys on from the Chicago Bike Revolution event that's happening in Humboldt Park. There, yeah. It's a lot of fun. It benefits Westtown Bikes, the youth program of the Westtown Bikes, and and it'll be the biggest bike, beer, and band party of the year in Humboldt Park. People can ride their bikes in and uh, drink Revolution beer and listen to bands all day long. And all the proceeds go to Westtown Bikes and their youth programs. Yeah, you're an avid biker, and now you've thrown the beer and everything else into it, too. So it's very, very attractive. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get you on a bike sometime, now. Yeah, of course, of course. And I, I hope that it's globally, globally sourced beers, you know, too. But I also want to mention something else, that there is an open Opening tonight of Weinberg Newton Gallery. It's a show of photography done by Human Rights Watch people. And it sounds like a really fascinating show. Uh, Human Rights Watch is an organization that is really doing a good job combining human rights and art uh, as a way of raising awareness. And this is at 688 North uh, North Milwaukee Avenue, right near the intersection of Chicago. It used to be Randolph Street Gallery was there. I I've been there uh, when it was back then. 
fascinating place to see art. Really interesting old industrial space. It'll be reopened tonight as a Weinberg Newton Gallery. Uh, so give that a try, and the show will be going on for several weeks. All right, on to our featured piece this uh, time around, and we're going to hear about uh, spoken word. Event. Yeah, Luya is a is a is an interesting spoken word concept that's going on. It's uh, uh, it's Pan Asian kind of a performance, uh, poetry and spoken word, and uh, it's happening at uh, uh, at Isa Studios or Isai Studios, Isa. I thought so, and it's happening at seventeen fifty South Union Avenue, and it's organized by a very interesting individual, uh, a Filipina. She's a poet, but she lived a big part of her life, a chunk of her life in Ho Chi Minh City. So she's really, truly a world citizen. Uh, Chris Aldana, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thanks for coming. And this sounds like a really interesting event. How did you dream up the idea of having a Pan-Asian spoken word night? Um, Well, I moved to Chicago about three years ago and I always really loved poetry, and I found spoken word in particular in college. And um, so I, I've known that my community, Filipino people and Asian people at large, like they have poems to share, but I would go to these open mics, and I wouldn't see very many brown people, and I also wouldn't see any Asian people. And I was like, what's, what's up with this? Why aren't we here? Um, and then... I thought about it from like a community organizing perspective and I'm like, of course we're not here if we don't feel like we are welcome here. So over the past couple of years, it's been kind of bubbling in my mind. Like how do we create a space and how do we reach out to the community to make sure that they can come into this space and feel comfortable sharing their stories? How did you translate that into action? Because this is a an event that uh, takes place. ISA Studio is in, in Pilsen, mm-hmm. and it's a really cool community arts space that mm-hmm. you can that people can come into, and it's cozy. It's like a house. Yeah. Um, it's, what, did that, um, how did that, that happen there? So Kiel, who runs ISA Studios, uh, is also a Filipino woman. She's fantastic, multidisciplinary artist. And I met her by chance at a community um, brunch event that I helped organize, which was in like at the very beginning of 2018. So it was a Filipino um, brunch that was used as a vehicle to create conversation around um, shame. So shame around like uh, your body, shame around your culture, your history, and how to basically get rid of that and kind of transcend that um, as Filipino Americans. So I met I met her there, and then when she opened Isa, I approached her and I was like, "Hey, how would you feel about hosting a monthly poetry event in your space?" So Christian, uh, tell us what what will be going on next Wednesday night, September eleventh, over there. Uh, what should people What could people be expecting? Uh, so people should expect a very cozy and intimate space. Um, we hold the open mic once every month on every second Wednesday. Uh, We lay out mats on the floor and people have the option to either like sit or stand. Um, We have a real Asian experience. Yes, very very Asian. And sometimes I have to tell the audience like it's okay for us to sit on the mat with our shoes on. I promise. Will you be passing loincloths too? (laughs) (laughs) We'll not be passing lungis out. But um, it is BYOB and also bring your own snacks because it does happen around dinner time. And I know people are hungry. Uh, we have uh, a DJ play for the first half hour, and people can just mingle and, like, connect. And then we go into the first half of the show, um, which is 
an open mic, so whoever signs up gets to go. Mm -hmm. Um, We go in a random order. You do have a theme, usually. Yes, we have a theme every show, and it's optional to follow it. So the theme for next week is Ancestors. Okay. I've been... ruminating with some community members about, you know, how we are able to connect to our history when it's not taught to us in our textbooks and how to also kind of come to terms with the fact that some of our ancestors are not so easy to love or revere. Uh, And so what that means for us. So I hope to hear some poems that uh, explore that next week. And I understand that you are a poet yourself. And uh, would you like to maybe even perform a little bit of your poetry for us? Sure, I would love that. Please go ahead. Okay. Um, this poem that I have today is called Filipino Section, and it is uh, it was sparked by being in bookstores and not finding books written by my people. I never expect to find us in the bookstore. I try anyway. I check for us in the nonfiction because I know our history is real. I think I might find my people in the poetry section because it's poetic how a populace can go on living through every new oppressive presidency. I run my fingers across every shelf. I linger on every Spanish author, Hernandez, Estrada, Ocampo, as if I'll know which book carries centuries of colonization on its spine just by looking. I forget how easily our names hide behind other ethnicities, how so often our people are mistaken for what we are not. You only have to hear our names to know, De Los Santos, De La Cruz, Del Rosario, as if Catholic syllables could bring us closer to God, as if breathing faith into our family names might bring our families praise, as if keeping our heads down could keep us safe, as if prayers to a savior who looks like a foreign king could save us. Maybe that's why we're always forgetting how brown we are how brown we've always been before they came to water down our family trees. If you shake the branches hard enough, a conquistador might fall out. At the reunion, your tita boasts about how much Spanish blood runs in our veins, as if their blood is what ripens our roots as they grow. We all want Sampaguita skin for a reason. We borrow their words to describe how close we are to their image, in order of preference, mestiza, morena, negrita, I don't have to tell you what they mean. There is one lonely section for the books of color. African American studies, Latin American studies, Asian American studies. They grouped us all together so it's easier to keep track of us. Just like naming us made it easier for them to keep track of us. Gutierrez, Aquino, Guevara, I know I won't find us here, but Lopez, Mendoza, de Guzman, I try anyway. It's been centuries since they left our shores, but we still measure their days in our language. Anong oras na? Well, it's half past King Philip, a la siete y media, time for evening mass. How can colonization leave you when its hands built your houses of worship, when its tongue defines your time, when it named you Sanchez, Garcia, Reyes, when it named you Philippines? Bravo. Thank you. Thank you. Chris Aldana, that was beautiful. Yeah. I I imagine... um, this resonates, you know, this is this, the thing that you wanted people, uh, you wanted to hear, that you mm-hmm. think people in the Pan-Asian community need mm-hmm. to hear. Yeah, I think within our community and also other communities of color, you know, Luya is such a beautiful space to me because you walk into that space and I see like every like shade and color uh, possible and every kind of identity represented in the Asian diaspora and also other brown people and also black people. And it's just really nice to see that we can be somewhere where we can talk about 
our experiences. Uh, Nari mentioned that you grew up in Ho Chi Minh City in I Vietnam. Did. How did that inform your thing? Um, I think it really it really allowed me to see how people treat you differently based on location, based on context, based on what their experience is. Um, and I think that's created an understanding of, of like the nuances with identity, right? Like here I'm a Filipino American, but there I'm a foreigner, right? Um, and so it's, it's been interesting to see how that manifests itself. I'm intrigued by uh, the way you have the evening, uh, um, the content of the evening mm-hmm. framed uh, as Pan-Asian. Uh, mm-hmm. um, is there, would you say there is a common thread running through uh, writings of the Asians uh, of various types? Or, uh, is, or is that just a, a very facile marketing ploy to kind of like put, put something <laughs> out there? I think I don't think I would call it a marketing ploy. I think yeah. there's definitely a thread that runs through a lot of the narratives, mm-hmm. uh, but there's also space for the fact that those narratives are going to be different, mm-hmm. right? So there are common threads of experiencing imperialism, of language loss, of the act trying to decolonize your thought processes, yeah. or like you know, strict or struggling to develop an identity here, right? Yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot of that that goes yeah. on, but there are also things that poets get up there and they talk about things, and I have no idea what they're talking about because I'm Filipino, and they're not, and that's okay, and I that's the space that we want to have. We want to learn, learn, learn something. Yeah. The uh, and I mean, there is so much I think for people in the 48 states mm-hmm. to learn about. Colonization. Mm-hmm. You know, we just talked. You just had an author on uh, about how to hide an empire. His books, "How to Hide an Empire" yeah. from Northwestern. Any, you know, the sections on the Philippines and Puerto Rico are mm-hmm. amazing, and the, mm-hmm. the violence is yeah. astounding in in the in the Philippines. Uh, the yeah. history, the U.S. violence. Yeah, it's it's bad in the history and even to the present day. Yep. You know, so there's still a base. In the Philippines, there's still a military presence there, the U.S. military presence. Well, right. uh, I think a lot of people will be interested in what you're doing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Congratulations on yeah. doing it. This is a that's a great thing. How many performers mm-hmm. are you anticipating? Um, we our slots usually fill up pretty fast. We reserve uh-huh. around twelve to thirteen for the okay. open mic because we also have a feature every week, every month that we do it. Mm-hmm. Great, wonderful. Chris Aldana is a Chicago-based Filipina poet and the organizer of Luya, and it's a spoken word open mic with a Pan-Asian experience there. And it's next Wednesday, September 11th at 7.30 at ISA Studio. It's uh, at 1750 South Union Avenue. There's a Facebook page, and um, I imagine the Facebook page is the best way to find out about it. Mm -hmm. eh? Thanks a lot for joining us, Chris Aldana. Monday on Worldview, we're going to check in on Hong Kong. It'll be another weekend of controversy, we are sure, in Hong Kong. And we will uh, check in on the democracy movement in Hong Kong on Monday. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview.